I mean, the video basically summarizes my entire message, so we can just go to the Lord in prayer and close our services at this time. Uh, our guests are like, yeah, I like this church. The Lord's leading me here. No, so we're going we're gonna to keep going beyond that. We, we do welcome you this morning. If you are a guest with us, definitely want to take this opportunity to uh, welcome you. It's an exciting time in the life of our church as we're kicking off uh, this new semester. And so as Pastor Kyle was sharing, and you'll hear in the weeks to come, you know, opportunities to connect with our life groups and places to, of service, uh, we encourage you to find uh, that place. But definitely excited for this upcoming semester. Take your Bibles with me this morning, if you would, and turn with me to 1 John. We're beginning a new series this morning entitled Promises. And so for the next five weeks, uh, this kind of goes, coincides with our study of our life groups. A lot of our life groups are doing this study of the five assurances, five promises of God's Word. And so over these next five weeks, we're going to identify what are some black and white promises uh, given to us in the Bible. If you were here with us last Sunday, we uh, looked at the story of Joseph. And the story of Joseph, one of my favorite Old Testament stories, but it's it's a story with a lot of twists and turns. Uh, and, and as we talked about last Sunday, you know, it's no coincidence that the very beginning of the story of Joseph, you find his visions. You find you know, God giving him these, these dreams. And what it is, is it's God's word to Joseph. It's God's promise to Joseph that in the twists and turns of his life, and we know that there were many twists and turns of his life, being sold into slavery, being thrown into a pit, being thrown into jail, there were many times that he could have easily questioned the work of God in his life. But there were promises that solidified him. There were promises that stabilized him. So I look at the life of Joseph and I look at our own lives of how we see what God's word has to say. But so many times in the twists and turns of our lives, in the struggles and the storms, especially, I believe, in those seasons of life, the enemy counters promises of God. And, and again, tries to cast doubt, I believe, upon things that cannot be broken, things that God's Word confirms, things that the Holy Spirit confirms, things that are all founded in the finished work of Christ. You know, they say there's not too many guarantees, right? There's really just two guarantees in life. What are they? They are death and taxes. You could add a third guarantee to that. If you're a football fan, I think we, it's safe to say that... We can guarantee the Redskins aren't going to win the Super Bowl in, in, in at least our lifetime, right? Can we at least admit to that? I get it. You're undefeated because you ain't played a game yet. So talk to me next week. We'll see how it goes, Redskins. I actually root for the Redskins. I do. But I, uh, I, I have a little bit of a root of bitterness just simply because when I was in college, my roommate was a diehard Redskins fan, and I, I thought he was the most obnoxious fan I'd ever met until I married a Cowboys fan. And so then I realized... <laughs> She's not in here. Okay, good. We got married in 2005. She's from uh, Texas. And I said, I said, you know, uh, you know, whatever we're talking about sports. She said, yeah, I'm a Cowboys fan. I said, name for me three players that play for the Cowboys. She started naming Emmett Smith and Troy Aitman. I'm like, uh, 10 years too late. That was the mid-90s. You're not a Cowboys fan. You were rooting for them back then when they won the Super Bowl. Separate thing. First John, take your Bibles. Take your Bibles. First John. And so this is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to talk about, okay, uncertain times, an uncertain world. What are things that we have that are certain? What are things that we have that are assurances? What are things that we have that are promises from God? So over these next five weeks, today we're going to deal with the promise of salvation. Next Sunday, we're going to look at the promise of answered prayer. The following week, we're going to look at the promise of victory over sin in our lives, the promise of forgiveness. And then finally, on the fifth Sunday, we're going to look at the promise of guidance. Two weeks from today, we have a baptism scheduled as well. And so I always want to encourage you, if the Lord's stirring your heart, if you've never been baptized by immersion or you've never been baptized on this side of your profession of faith in two weeks, 
weeks, we will have baptism in all four of our services. You can send me an email. You can go online and fill out a baptism uh, form. But again, uh, how the Lord is leading you in that. So take your Bibles, if you would, and stand with me this morning. First John chapter 5. Let's go there. It's a beautiful section of Scripture that about, is really about eight years ago, we went through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and so it was a great joy for me to go back this past week and to look at this passage. It's something that, again, in the context of, the, of its whole, you really get the full meaning, but this morning I'm going to try to do it justice by just going back and just pulling out this little section here that the Apostle John gives us that I believe, again, is one of the great foundational promises of our faith, promises that hold us uh, through all the different seasons and the twists and turns of our lives. And so let's look at this passage this morning. 1 John chapter 5. Let's just read verse 11, and then we'll actually cover verse 6 through 13. But let's just start with verse 11 this morning. The Bible says this. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. But where is this life found? This life is found in, say it with me, His Son. Join with me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. The Lord, the foundational promise of our salvation, it's not founded in a religion, it's found in a person. And we thank you, Lord, that it's in Jesus Christ, our Savior, your Son, who came and lived and died and rose again. And we're the only ones who can say that, that we serve a risen Savior who conquered the grave, who conquered death, who conquered our sins. And so, Lord, that gives us great hope. And the promises of your word, Lord, solidifies us in the twists and turns of our lives. And so, Lord, this morning I know that there are many who walked in the doors of this place maybe struggling, Lord, maybe with doubt upon their life and maybe even doubt upon their own salvation. Lord, may today be a day that we just drive the stake in it. That, Lord, by the authority of your word, by the work of your son, we are saved. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that, Lord, you would do the work that only you can do. We pray it, we ask it in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I've shared stories before of of kind of those initial seasons of my life. I surrendered to ministry in the fall of 2001. I graduated college in in May of 2001, and and really, you've heard my story, ran, uh, initially ran from a call into ministry. Um, the Lord brought Amber into my life, and it's an interesting story of how the Lord used uh, our friendship through that, you know, beginning stages. Well, then early in the fall, or in the spring of the next year, 2002, I began my first semester in seminary, and I was commuting uh, to Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. You've heard me talk about this, drive down 58, don't speed to Emporia or South Hill for that matter, and then you cut over on 85, I'd cut over on 85, take Highway 1, and so it was about a three and a half hour drive to Wake Forest, North Carolina. Now, I remember that first day, it was only Tuesday, it started at 8 in the morning. And I basically had class beginning at 8 in the morning. My final class was from 7 to 10 that night with about an hour and a half combined break in between in that full day. And I remember that night going back to the hotel room. I dropped all my stuff off, and I got in the car, and I drove to a gas station, and I called home from a payphone. That's weird for me even to say out loud. (laughs) For you young people, a payphone is this thing that was a booth that you could— Anyway, so now, like I had a cell phone. I think back to myself, why why didn't I— I think I left a cell phone in the room or something. But anyway, I called home, called my dad from the payphone. And I said, Dad, I'm struggling. I said, I'm going to be real with you. Today was a hard day. It was an awful day. Uh, Every professor thinks they're the only professor, especially when they're assigning their reading. I said, Dad, I'm telling you, I I know I went before the congregation and said that I felt a call into ministry, and and, and the congregation confirmed it. I said, I'm coming forward Sunday and telling them I misheard God, is what I told my dad. (laughs) I was so overwhelmed by the new journey. And so my dad said to me, he said, Heath, he said, are you questioning your calling? And I remember saying to him, Dad, I'm not just questioning my calling, I'm questioning my salvation. And I was joking in that moment, but I thought about that this past week. 
of how often for us as believers, right, we can fall into that trap. And I believe that. I think for every single one of us who's been on a journey with the Lord Jesus Christ, I would dare to say that there's been a time in your life where you've doubted your salvation. Again, the accuser of the brethren is the enemy. And so we know, I believe, that the enemy changes his tactics, that when an individual repents of their sins and turns to Christ as Lord and Savior, ultimately the war has been lost when it comes to the enemy. If you believe that, say amen. Amen. That soul is secure, that soul is sealed, and there's nothing the enemy can do to snatch them from the hands of God. I believe that. But I believe he changes his tactics. I believe, okay, here's a soul that has been redeemed. Here's a soul that's been forgiven. Here's a soul that's been saved through the blood of Jesus. We can't do anything to rob them of their eternity. So let's do everything we, do, we can do to cripple them in the here and now. To not be used by God. To not be a testimony of God. To be discouraged. And to even be in a place of questioning, right? Because if you find a believer who's constantly questioning their salvation, constantly questioning the assurance of their salvation, I think you would dare to say that you find a crippled Christian. That it's hard to take steps forward. It's hard to find that place of service. It's hard to find that joy, that peace that surpasses understanding. So I believe that this is a great tactic of the enemy in the life of believers. And so what we have a tendency to do is we have a tendency to base the validity or the assurance of our salvation on our actions. Now, I know the Bible says that in obedience we are to walk, that the evidence of a changed life, evidence of a redeemed heart is obedience, is love. However, it doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. We're going to stumble. We're going to fall. And when those things happen, the enemy is quick to come around and kick up dirt and say, hey, you claim to be saved. You claim to be a Christian. You claim to be new. You claim to be changed. Well, this don't look any different than what it used to look like before. And it can cripple us. And so I believe this has to be the starting point. When we start talking about the promises of God's Word, well, what is God's Word in its entirety? It's a story. It's a story from start to finish, and it's a story of salvation. From the very beginning, it's a story of salvation. Genesis 3.15 is the first prophecy of Scripture. Genesis 3.15 is where sin enters into humanity there in the Garden of Eden. The enemy thinks he's one, and God steps in and identifies. And what does he say? That Hey, here's the greatest defeat in the history of the human race. Sin entered into humanity, but let me give you the greatest hope. And what does he say? He makes a promise that I'll put enmity as he looks through the serpent between your seed and her seed. Her seed? The seed of a woman? That doesn't make sense. The seed lies within the man. It's the prophecy of the virgin birth. That there is God from the very beginning giving prophecy that, hey, there will come one who will save, who will redeem, who will restore what is broken. And so when we talk about the assurance of our salvation, we understand that, hey, eternal assurance is not found in a religion. Eternal assurance is not found in a performance. Eternal assurance is found in a person, and it's found in Jesus. And so what we're going to do this morning is kind of unpack this passage, but it all kind of goes back to even what John writes in John 20, verse 31. Let me just read this passage, and then we'll walk through some of these verses. He says this in John 20, verse 31. These are written for what reason, for what purpose, that you might believe. What's the purpose behind the writing of John? That you might believe. Here's evidence, here's story, here's testimony, and the heart of the reason that I'm putting this down on paper is that you might believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, what does he say? That you might have 
eternal life. And so three things this morning I want us to see. Ready? Three things this morning we can base the promise of our salvation upon. Number one, the finished work of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen this morning? Amen? There are some religions that spell salvation this way. D-O. Do. Do. You've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do this to bridge the gap between a sinful individual and a holy God. Let me tell you something. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing I can do. When I read God's word, when I see salvation, when I see redemption, when I see forgiveness, I don't see do. I don't see do, D-O. I see da, da, la, 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 la. <laughs> I see done. Can I get an amen? <laughs> That's what I was trying to say. D, spell it with me, D-O-N-N. No, E, there's an E on the end. The final end silent. Done. I'm joking. I know how to spell done. Let's look at this passage. 1 John 5. Just can't say it. 1 John 5, 4 through 6. Here it is. The finished work of Jesus. The assurance of our salvation is on Jesus. The promise is on Jesus. Look at this. For whatever is born of God, verse 4, overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Our faith. Not just general faith. Not just faith in a religion. Faith in a person. Look at what he says. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes in the one who has overcome? Jesus, the Son of God. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is what? Truth. So he speaks of faith. He speaks of belief. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says what? For by grace you have been saved through faith. But not just faith and belief in the church or faith and belief in, in religion. Faith and belief specifically in one, in Jesus. And in the work of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus in his life, in his birth, faith and belief that, okay, I do believe that he was not born in the sin circle of the, the, the chain reaction of sin, of being born in Adam. No, I do believe that he was from a holy offspring. I don't understand it. It's hard for me to reconcile that in my mind. But by faith, I believe it. Because had he not been, then he could not have been the substitute for my sins. He would just be a man like me, a sinful man. So it's belief in not only just Jesus, but in the way that he was born, the way that he lived, that he was perfect, that he was sinless, the way that he died, that he died in my place, that he died as a substitute, the way that he rose again, the foundation of our faith, what separates us is the finished work of Christ, not only his birth, not only his life, not only his death, but his resurrection. And we're the only ones who can say that. We're the only ones who can say, I put my faith, my trust in the one who not only lived and died, but who rose again. And there's evidence of that beyond just the writings of the Bible. In secular writings, you will find over 2,000 years ago references to this man who reappeared. And I think of even 1 Corinthians 15, one of the first books of the Bible. 1 Corinthians, uh, the, the letter to the church of Corinth, somewhere around 50 to 55 AD, Paul writes this. Think about that. Just 20 years removed from the resurrection of Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he begins to list all the people that Jesus appears to. And if you remember, there's a whole section of them. He says, and even to 500, Jesus appeared. That could have easily been countered. It was only 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. I mean, the fact that we even have 1 Corinthians included in our Bible today means that there were those who didn't refute that 2,000 years ago. So where do we base our assurance? Man, not in my performance, praise God. Not even in my faithfulness, praise God. But in the finished work 
of Jesus Christ. Look at what it says here in verse 6. This is he. I love that little phrase here. This is he. The word this is in the emphatic position, which emphasizes uniqueness, exclusiveness. And so what John is saying is this. This is he. This is the one promised. This is the one and no other. This is the one spoken of by the prophets. This is he. Not one of many, but one of one. And he says it. If you go back and look at some of his other writings, you go down to chapter 2, verse 2 of 1 John. He says this. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Don't miss that phrase. Jesus Christ the righteous, the holy, the perfect. And he himself is the propitiation payment for our sins. And so there's a connection right there. The connection is what? That the payment has to be perfection. That the payment has to be holiness. That it has to be Jesus the righteous. That if it was anyone else trying to make a payment, that payment would not be full. But because it's Jesus the righteous who stands in our place and who takes our sins upon his shoulders, there is the final work, the final sacrifice. Never again does a lamb have to be ushered into the altar and to be sacrificed upon the altar because God's lamb, God's spotless lamb, the spotless lamb of Jesus willingly laid his arms out upon the cross. Amen. But it's the work of Jesus. And this is where our hearts and minds have to come back to. That this is He. That my assurance, my promise is founded in Him and what He's done. Christ the righteous, the perfect made a payment. And look at the next part of verse 6. This is interesting that he repeats this phrase. He says, this is he, this is the one promise. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but also by blood. Many of you going back and going, okay, why does John repeat himself? Is this kind of ADD and he just kind of loses his track and he repeats? No, that's not what's going on here. You got to go back and look at the context of what he's battling. So this was written somewhere around 90 to 95 AD. The great heresy of that time was Gnosticism, to know. Uh, a sect of Gnosticism was Docetism. Docetism kind of fell in the same line of Gnosticism that said all physical matter is evil and the spiritual realm is good. Docetism basically believed this. It believed, okay, that the Spirit of Christ came upon Jesus but for a short period of time. That the Spirit of Christ was upon Jesus, the physical body of Jesus, at his baptism, at his teaching, at his miracles, but was not upon him at his death. Because how could it be upon him at his death? If the spiritual cannot, again, if that's good and the physical is bad, how can the presence of God being good take form in a physical body? And so I believe what you find here in this little passage is John countering that. Here is John saying, no, Jesus in the water and baptism, I believe, is a reference to his baptism, water. Blood is a reference to his death. And so what is John saying? John is saying, no, this God-man, this Jesus, was fully God, both at his baptism and also even bleeding upon the cross. He didn't cease to be Christ. The Spirit of Christ didn't come and just dwell for a little while and leave. No, he was fully Christ the entire time he indwelled this human body. And so he's countering this teaching in a lot of ways. And so what do we base it upon? Number one, the finished work of Jesus Christ. Here's the second one. Look at verse 7. Not only the work of Jesus Christ, but the witness of the Holy Spirit. Count how many times the word witness is used here. I counted nine, but let's just read through here. Verse 7. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. What a beautiful statement of the Trinity right there in verse 7. And there are three that bear witness on earth. The Spirit, the water, and blood. I believe this is a reference to what we just saw in verse 6. 
Verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. I love that. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. What is he saying? Man, it's powerful to have witnesses of men. But the greatest witness of the Lord Jesus Christ is the Father. What does he use as the witness? The Holy Spirit. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness where? Within himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. He who has the Son, here's the summary, has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So just in this little section right here, the word witness is used nine times within these verses. What is he saying? The witness of the Spirit does not supplement the work of Christ. The witness of the Spirit complements the work of Christ. The Holy Spirit is always giving witness to Jesus. Anytime you find a service or a place that elevates the Holy Spirit to neglect of the Lord Jesus Christ, just know they have the order out of whack according to the Word of God. It is the Trinity, but what will you find? You will find the Holy Spirit always, 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 not elevating his own name, but always elevating the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the witness of the Holy Spirit, to make known the name of Jesus in our hearts, and then to grow us, to shape us more like Jesus as he leads us in the truth. Notice the end of verse 6. And it is the Spirit who bears witness. Why? Because the Spirit is truth. He speaks truth because he is truth. The witness of the Holy Spirit, the witness of his blood, the witness of his death, the witness of his resurrection, the witness is truth because he is truth. I saw this past week, I thought it was so good, where it says there that he bears witness of the Son in heaven and on earth. I read this past week a description of the Holy Spirit that said that he's the agent of revelation. I thought that sounded really cool, like a superhero type deal, like the agent of revelation, the revealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. From the very beginning, Genesis to Revelation, what do you find? The revealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. Meaning what? That with the functioning of the Trinity, within the functioning of the Trinity, it is the Spirit's work to what? To reveal. To reveal. 2 Peter 1.21, the reason we have these words in front of us, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved, as it was revealed by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says he's the one that leads us initially to truth, and then he's the one that leads us into truth. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says what? No man can say Jesus is Lord except from the Holy Spirit. The fact that we come to a place of recognition of our sins and we come to a place of profession of faith in Jesus Christ is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. No man, no woman can come to faith apart from the leading, the drawing of the Holy Spirit. He says he leads us to truth and then when an individual has professed Christ as Savior, they are indwelled. There's the witness that lives within themselves and now the Bible says he leads us in the truth. John 16, 13, but when the spirit of truth comes, Jesus says he will guide you into all the truth. So what do we base it upon? We base it upon what Jesus has done, D-O-N-E, what he's done, the finished work of Christ. We base it upon the witness of the Holy Spirit. And there's something about the confirmation of the Holy Spirit in our lives. There's something about it. That if you're a child of God, you've been there before where you have just felt the embrace of the Lord. And it can be a very unique moment. Sometimes it's when you failed. Sometimes it's when you're struggling. Sometimes it's even in the blessings that you just feel the unique embrace of God's Holy Spirit. His presence that is there. And look at, he describes it. Look at verse 9. If we receive the witness of men... The witness of God is greater. Where's the witness of God? Look at what he says. This is the witness of God which has testified of his son. Verse 10, he who believes of the son of God has the witness within himself that no longer is there a temple. We, we are now the temple 
of the Holy Spirit. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. There is something unique about the witness of the Holy Spirit. If you're a child of God, when you're in a place where you're not supposed to be, there's something unique about the conviction and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you're in a place where you're struggling with doubt and you're struggling with with questions, there's something amazing about the ministering of the Holy Spirit in your life, the reminding ministry, the comforting ministry, of the, the encouraging ministry, of the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. God says what? The Bible says this is proof. This is one of the foundational proofs that you are a child of God, that not only is it the finished work of Jesus, but it's the witness of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's a mark of a believer, the presence of God living within us. And then finally, I want to give you a third one. Here it is. The finished work of Jesus, the witness of the Holy Spirit. But let's just base it it down to one thing, the Word of God. Look at what it says here in verse 11 through 13. This is really the summary of this passage. And this is the testimony that God has given us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son, finished work of Jesus. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Notice the very beginning of verse 13. These things I've written to you. What's he talking about? He's talking about the words we're reading. These things I've written, these things inspired by the Holy Spirit, I have put to paper. These things I've written to you, God's word, he's talking about. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may what? Know that you have eternal life, that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And so where does he point us? He not only points us to Jesus who accomplished the work for us. He not only points us to the internal witness of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. He basically just points us to the words given to us in Scripture, that there are promises in God's word that cannot be broken. And he says, these things I write to you who believe that when you believe that you may know, that when you believe that you may know, that you can open your eyes, that you can take the truth of these words, and the Holy Spirit can take that promise and solidified in your heart that you may know whether you're up here or you're down here or whether you understand why things are happening or you're questioning every single thing. You can rest in the promises of knowing that you are secured in the blood of Jesus. And this book is a book of promises. And he would cease to be God if even one was broken. I heard someone say years ago, we should never put a question mark where God has put a period. And when it comes to this issue of salvation, God has put a period here. And he's made it very clear, very simple for us to understand what this means and where our hope is founded. And what you find here is what? We don't have a think-so salvation. We don't have a hope-so salvation. We don't have a cross your heart, cross your fingers, count your beads, and hope you get to heaven salvation. According to the authority of this book in front of me, we have a no-so salvation. Because it's founded in Jesus. And unless Jesus changes, my salvation ain't going to change. I didn't do anything to accomplish my salvation. Christ did it all. And so in order for my salvation to be removed, there has to be something changed in Christ. And we know that that's not the case. So let me just ask you the simple question as we close. Do you have this assurance? Number one, founded in Jesus. There's nothing you bring to the table. There's nothing you can do to bridge that gap is Christ and Christ alone. Number two, the eternal witness of the Holy Spirit. Do you have that confirmation in your life of the presence of God with you, that still small voice of God's holy presence living within you? And do you take God at his word to say, Lord, again, I I may struggle with where this all lands in my own life, but I believe it. I trust in it. 
It's the story of a young pastor. I remember a professor telling us this one time. A young pastor had a mentor of an older gentleman. He was in his late 80s, had pastored for over 55 years. And the young pastor said to him, he says, I'm struggling with my salvation. So the older pastor said, well, you know, let's walk through the scripture. Let's walk through what the Bible says. Have you come to that place of acknowledgement and understanding of your sins? The young pastor said, yeah, I have, and I'm broken over them. And I've asked God to forgive me of them, and I've turned from them. He said, okay, then the Bible says, okay, the mouth confesses salvation unto the heart. There's righteousness. So, okay, in your heart, are you crying out to Jesus with the mouth? Are you professing Jesus as Savior? He said, I've done that. And so the pastor walked with him through this two or three different times. And he looked at the young guy, and he says, is there that assurance of your salvation? He says, no, I still doubt it. And the old pastor put his arm around him, and he said, the question I would ask you is, who are you doubting? Are you doubting your ability to be saved? Are you doubting God's ability to save you? I think the enemy, man, tries to muddy the waters with this when God's Word makes it pretty clear and simple. We're not born just walking with God. I've heard people say, hey, I've always known God. You haven't. We're born separated from God. We're born into Adam. We're born into sins, an enemy of God. So the Bible says there has to be a moment for all of us. There has to be a moment of understanding and recognizing our sins. That's that brokenness and turning of our sins. And faith. By faith we are saved through grace. God's grace, God's mercy, but it's our faith in a person, in Jesus. Do you have that assurance this morning? You say, how do you know? The Bible says we're known by our fruit. And so here's some good questions to ask. Okay, I think, or maybe I'm struggling. Well, here's some good questions. Do you have that inner peace? Because you don't get the peace of God unless you're at peace with God. And the only way to be at peace with God is through the blood of Jesus. Is that peace there? Number two, do you have a new love for God? Are the things of God a new love for truth? No longer wanting to walk in in the lies of this world, but wanting to walk in the truth of God's word. Do you have that desire? Do you have a new concern for others? The Bible says that will come with a new heart, a new love for other people. By this they will know you are my disciples by the way that you love. Do you have a a, a new sense of forgiveness, a new awareness of sin? The four questions we ask ourselves engaging our spiritual journey is, number one, am I following completely? Is there anything in God's Word that I'm neglecting to do of what the Bible's called me to do? Number two, am I changing continually? Can I see change in my life? The Bible says that's evidence of a true relationship? Am I living generously? Do I look at the things that even I own differently, my resources, my talents, my time, my treasures, do I look at them differently because of a changed heart? Am I making disciples? What does that simply mean? Am I seeking to bring others along? My family, my kids, my grandkids. With every head bowed and every eye closed in this hour, as we walk through these assurances over these next five weeks, Let me just tell you something, man. If this is not settled in your heart and mind, the enemy will keep you right here. He will. So I think it's critical that the first place that we deal with when it comes to these promises is the promise of the greatest miracle there is in any of our lives. The promise of forgiveness. The promise of heaven. The promise of eternity. I just did a funeral yesterday for a family. And one of the things we talked about is I said, you know, in these moments, I can't imagine not having the hope of Christ. You know, not only for the one who has gone before you, but even for the family to have the hope that is founded in Christ. Do you have that hope? I'm just simply asking, do you have that hope? The Bible says what? It begins with our sins. (laughs) 
It begins with coming face to face with our sins, right? For all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God is coming to that recognition that I'm a sinner. By choice, by nature, I'm a sinner. And there's consequences to these sins, right? What does Paul say? For the wages of sin is death. And that just sets you up, man, for the beautiful good news. But the gift of God is eternal life, founded in Jesus Christ, his son. This is what you deserve, and this is what I've given. This is what should come to you, but instead, this is what I've done for you. Have you responded to that? The Bible tells us, right? He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Bottom line. It comes down to Jesus. You and Jesus is what it comes down to. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I take those words for what they say. Maybe you're here today and you struggle with this. Maybe you doubted your salvation. My encouragement would be, strive a stake in it. No more can the enemy use the uncertainty against us. Let's drive a stake in the finished work of Jesus. Let's drive a stake in the witness of the Holy Spirit. Let's drive a stake in the promise found right here in God's Word. So if you're here this morning and God is stirring in your heart and that has to be what God is doing, it's got to be the leading of the Holy Spirit to truth and in truth, but maybe you're here this morning being led to truth. And that truth is Christ. Maybe right now where you're sitting, man, you can cry out. This is between you and the Lord. There's no magic words. There's no magic ceremonies. This is a heart that cries out to God. You can cry out right where you're sitting. Lord, I want this to be solidified in my life. And so I cry out to you. I ask you for forgiveness. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. And Lord, I cry out to you for salvation. And so I place my faith in Jesus and Jesus alone, your son who came, who lived, who died, who rose again. I place my faith in Jesus. I ask you to save me. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to live within my life, to be the king of my heart, to lead me and to guide me, to lead me in all truth. I rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let me just say this, man. If you pray that, there's nothing more we want to do than come beside you. We have our spiritual response team, our pastors. But let me say, it may not be one of us. Share that with someone, someone you know to be a believer who has a relationship with Christ. We want to come beside you, especially as we continue in this series of building blocks of our faith, building blocks of this journey with the Lord. But it starts right here. And until this is nailed down, the enemy will always bring you back here. I assure you of that. Say, Lord, I trust in you. Not what I've done, but what you have done. I'm going to ask you to stand right where you are if you would. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer. We're going to conclude our service this morning. But let me just tell you this, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again. The invitation doesn't end. We're going to say amen. We're going to go in the parking lot, be nice to one another. In the parking lot, it's crowded out there. Be nice to one another. One of the fruits of a new life, of a changed life, is you're nice to people in the car. Immediate conviction on my heart right there. And so let me just say the invitation doesn't end. I speak for all of our pastors. I speak for all of our leaders. And we're on a journey with you. But if we get this wrong, nothing else matters. Do you hear me? 
we get this wrong, nothing else matters. So let's lay this down as a rock in our lives that says, you know what, regardless of where my day goes, I am secured. Jesus has finished it. The Holy Spirit's confirmed it. It's promised to me in God's word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our Savior. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what we could not do that our God did for us. To enter into the world he created to take on this shell fully as a man. To experience what we experience even in our struggles and our letdowns. But to never compromise his perfection, his holiness, his righteousness so that he might meet your standards, your judgment, that by his blood we might be forgiven and saved. And so, Lord, it's by the authority of your word and the authority of the witness within us that we stand boldly with confidence, resting in the finished, resurrected work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we leave this place with hope. We leave this place encouraged. We leave this place knowing there's nothing we can do, the enemy can do, the world can do to snatch us from the hands of the God who has saved us. May we rest in that as we leave this place. We pray it, we ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday morning.